stars and planets and sun and moon. And then he began to fill the water with great sea creatures. And he filled the, the heavens, uh, the, the sky, with birds. I think it's always interesting to look at this. You, know, you, you look through embryos from early on, they all look pretty much alike. In fact, sometimes it's deduced that we must be similar to fishes because we look like fish when we first start off. Must be similar to rats and monks and we look just like them when we first start off. Of course, they begin to develop and change. But God certainly is a God of organized design. It's interesting to me that he makes the birds and the fish on the same day. Because if you look at a flock of birds, it looks like a school of fish that swims through the sky. And I've always thought birds look like a flock of birds flying through the water. And you get some really similar patterns. You know, a lot of them, they're egg layers. Some are live bears, but some are egg layers. You get really similar things. And the more I look at that, the less I see random chance that all these things follow the same model and pattern. If you look at flowers and plants, most of them are based on the same simple scheme. There are some variations, but the theme is the same. And that's because God is a God of order and a God of design. And the more we look at what's right before us, we see design in everything. Um, there's a, some really good lessons by Buddy Payne who talks about the design in nature. All, I mean, from, from the details in the, in the molecular level all the way up to the, to the microscopic, you see just design after design after design. And he kind of talks about how there's this search for intelligent life. I think they've quit doing that now, this SETI experiment that was done in the 70s, where they were waiting for a pattern from the stars. They wanted to hear uh, an, a certain pattern of sounds, these radio waves emitted from the stars. Then they would know intelligence was behind it. And he said, if they'd look at a flower, they'd see pattern, they'd see design. It was, it was repeatable, and it was something that was exact and, and created to be that way. And they would see intelligence there, but they'd never look at the flower. They were looking at space and missed it. So the point of all this design that God is bringing as he fills in and organizes his earth. There's something really cool that at first reading maybe we don't catch, verses 20 through 25. This phrase, according to its kind, repeats seven times. <laughs> Remember that law that God made about the seeds that would be planted and re would reduce after their kind? He made that same law about animals, and he emphasized it by stating it seven <coughs> times in these verses, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind. Now, science will come along and tell us that animals didn't always reproduce according to their kind. That if you give them enough time, they'll produce a new kind. They call it evolution. <laughs> That's what evolution is, is that a, a species evolves into another species. That one kind becomes another kind that may not even look much like the original kind looked after a certain amount of time. <laughs> now, it's amazing to me. Because we know science is always right. Science has never made any mistakes. The Earth, obviously, is very flat. 500 years ago, people wouldn't laugh if I said that. I mean, people would still believe that. The Earth is obviously the center of our solar system. That's why it's called the solar system. The sun's the center of it. Uh, people, a few hundred years ago, would have laughed at that. Science only observes. We need to understand that. Science has been put up on such a pedestal that we believe science creates. Science only observes. Science can manipulate observable things, but science cannot create from nothing. I love the, the old joke. I don't know, maybe you've heard this already. But the atheist goes up to God and starts looking at the creation and says to God, you know, I can do that. God says, you can do what? I can make all this stuff from the dust of the ground. God says, okay, do it. And the guy bends down and picks up some dirt. And God says, no, make your own dirt. <laughs> God made everything from nothing. The atheist says, I can recreate from what's here. Uh, that's not the same thing. And you can't really recreate. You can just remodel a few things. And even some of those are never going to work out. So... As we look at this, we should not be afraid of science. Science observes. Science has made some really astute observations. 
But when science begins to get too big for its britches and begins to think, well, now we're God, God is dead, a New York Times famous headline from the late 70s, uh, we've got science now, we don't need God anymore, then we're in trouble. We need to observe things and realize there's a creator who made things that way. In fact, as we begin to observe these patterns and see the way God has made them, we get our worldview tuned in to the creator, we'll see him more clearly in everything around us. Like I said, as an atheist, I would look at the stars and think, hmm, I wonder what caused all that. As a child of God, I can look at those stars and say, wow, my dad made that. <laughs> yeah, not being blasphemous, but just to be amazed at the power of the one who is considering me when he made it. He's thinking about me. I like your point that we not, we're not to be afraid of science. Absolutely not. Science, the more they discover, the more they just, they emphasize why I believe. Amen. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, all these archaeological digs that, that began after Darwin's discoveries, after his revelations, were designed to find these missing links that he said, surely they'll be finding them soon. And if they don't, you can dismiss my theory. I mean, it's in his book. You can dismiss my theory if you don't find the missing links, which they haven't, but they keep banging his theory out. But a lot of what they've found has been this great archaeology that's just produced more and more evidence that the Bible knew what it was talking about. You know, nations that we thought never existed, the Hittites and some of the, because of this archaeology to try to find missing links, they found evidence of these things. That's just amazing. We should not be afraid of science when it's real science, when it's observation of things that are existing in the world, when it's experimentation with what's there. God has given us great capacity. You know, we can, we can fight diseases because of experimentation with things that naturally occur, putting them together in certain combinations. That's brilliant. God designed that. We didn't make it. We just took advantage of what God had made. So we need to understand that science and the Bible are not diametrically opposed. In fact, real science will uphold what the Bible says. The creator has put all these things here. Let's observe it. Let's appreciate it. Let's use it for the benefit of man, for good. So God made all of these things according to their kind, and God saw that it was good. And it's interesting, one thing we didn't point out, that usually at the end of a day, God will say it was good. We see like, for example, in verse uh, 5, it was the, the evening and the morning of the first day, but he had seen just before that in verse 4 that it was good. And you go down to verse 10, it's the end of the uh, third day at that point, and he saw that things were good there. Uh, so this time in verse 25, we're halfway through the sixth day, and God says it was good. There's, a, there's an obvious break here all of a sudden. And it's, it should be a little bit shocking. If we're studying the text with detail, we don't have the time to do today, we'll notice that all of a sudden... In the middle of the day, he said, and it was good. Whatever's coming next is separate from what happened in the first part of that day. And we'll see whatever's coming next when we get into verse 26 about He's going to make man. Man also will be good, but this is something that is beyond what he's done up to this point. If none of your other academic arguments uh, connect with an atheist and you're going through this, you can always connect with him on a joke about how he's like God. Because both ACS and most of us don't like Mondays. He says it's good about every day but Monday. That's true, too. I thought about that. Appreciate that, culture. It's always good to have a different perspective. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's look at verses 26 through 31. Let's look at the second half of this last day. Who'd like to read that for us? 26 through 31. Richard, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, 
and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there, were, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, thank you. So, up to this point, when God's going to create something, how does he do it? He speaks it. He speaks it. He says, let there be light. Let the earth bring forth. Let this happen. Let that happen. Well, he spoke here, but this is a little different. <laughs> what did he say here in verse 26? Let us make. He didn't say, let there be man. He said, let us make. So all of a sudden, then he says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Who in the world, who in the creation, is God talking to? There's a lot of postulated theories about this. One of the major ones is that he's talking to the angels, that he used the angels in to make the creation. There's no evidence in the Bible of that. But that's what some people will say. But who is he talking to? The Bible actually tells us who he's talking to. <laughs> talking to Christ. How do I know that? I wouldn't know it from here. He's obviously talking to somebody. How do I know it's, it's the Christ that he's talking to? John. <laughs> Hebrews, John, and Colossians is where I would go. Uh, Hebrews, I wouldn't use as much. I think we can infer that from Hebrews. It's not as direct. But John 1, nothing was made that was made except through him, except by him. Colossians 1, he's the first one of all, crea all, all creation. All things that were made were made for him and by him. Uh, so certainly we know that him in those contexts is, is Jesus. He's speaking to Jesus. I would also argue perhaps he's discussing this with the Holy Spirit. We won't get that from Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. But my observation as we go through the Bible is that God is the architect, God the Father. God really defines deity. So Jesus is God, Spirit is God, God the Father is God. That's the, the word we use to describe the, the divinity or the deity. But God the Father is the architect. God the Son is the one who, who effects, who does. He's the one that went to the cross. He's the one who made the creation. He's the one that it acts. And the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals and then does the things that deal with revelation, like the spiritual gifts that, that we get in through Moses and then we get also in the New Testament with the tongue speaking. The Spirit regenerates in the sense that it produces the word that brings about regeneration. Sure. Uh, but I believe what we, what we see is that God is speaking here with certainly with Jesus and with the Spirit as well. The Spirit has revealed all this to us, and so we know this because of the, the spiritual revelation. That's a lot to get into with a, with a first-time person I'm sitting down with. I probably wouldn't go into those details. I would bring out God and Jesus in this conversation, certainly, because we can back those up with two uh, clean pieces of Scripture to do that. But God is having a conversation here. He didn't just say, let man exist. <laughs> There's something more going on here. So he's speaking with Jesus, and he makes this interesting, uh, uh, has this interesting desire. Let's make man in our image according to our likeness. And so what we usually do is we look at ourselves and we think, God must be like us. He must have a head and two arms and legs. And we see things in the Bible talk about God seeing all things and knowing all things. So we begin to humanize God. We get it backwards. <laughs> God didn't say, let's make ourselves in man's image. He said, let's make man in our image, in our likeness. Let's imagine we don't have any of the rest of the Bible, except Genesis 1 up to verse 26. What do we know about God? He's a spiritual being. He's a spirit being. He's a God of order. 
He's a God of command. He's a God uh, that is good. We see a lot of qualities, but they're not physical qualities. They're spiritual qualities. We see things that, de- that define God's deity and God's person, but not his physicality. God has no physicality. And so when we begin to see God wanting to make man in his image, I don't believe we should look at the physical and think that's what God made us in the image of. In fact, I believe the verse tells us exactly what God has in mind. If we'll look at the text, we'll get that physical question out of our head. We're not thinking about legs and arms and hands and eyes and stuff like that. What does he say they're going to do in his image? Verse 26. They'll rule. They'll have dominion. Who's the ruler? God is. He is allowing part of his rule then to be in the hand of men. Let them have dominion, have rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing. He has put the earth under their command. God's the one who really is the ruler, but he says, on earth, I want you to rule. I'm going to give you this authority here. And then he does something else that's really interesting. If you look at verse 28, he's made male and female both in the image of God. That's something a little different to think about. We'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 28, though, what else has he said to them? that defines a little bit of his nature. Yeah. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. He brings that idea of rule up again. Who is it that rules over the earth, and who is it that's filled the earth up to this point? God. But he now gives man, as he makes man, gives man capacity for rule and for procreation. It's man that's going to fill the rest of the earth. He's going to work with the plants so the plants produce as they're supposed to. He's going to work with the animals so they produce as they're supposed to. And he's going to fill the earth with others like himself. He's given man two of the great aspects we've seen of God so far. The power of creation, though it's not exact creation, it's procreation and authority over the creation. And these are things that he'll lose, especially the authority over creation. He's going to, be, uh, he's going to lose that authority over creation when the sin comes. It's going to be put... Uh, uh, is going to lose his image of God. We'll talk about that a little bit more too. But at least right here, we shouldn't imagine this is some kind of a physical image of God. It's more to do with what God has purposed for man. And he's able to have a relationship with that aspect of man much more than he'd be able to with the physical aspect of man because God is not physical. The fact that he made in verse 27 both male and female in his image should, uh, should help us to define that a little bit better. Male and female are similar, but they're not both equals uh, in terms of physicality, but they're both equals in terms of the image of God that they bring. And so uh, we'll look at that a little more in chapter 2 as well, this question of their roles and how they're both made uh, in God's image. So God has made them. He's given them his image, or he wants to make them in his image. He wants them to be blessed and fruitful. And he says in verse 29 that he's given them all the herbs and all the trees of fruit to be for food. He's given them vegetables to eat. And then verse 30, what has he given the animals to eat? Every green plant. The animals also only eat greenery. And we look out the world now, we see you know, cats kill birds, or snakes eat mice, or whatever. We see that there's even death and destruction and decay in the animal food chain. And some people would say, well, what kind of a good God would make such a bloody mess? You know, we're watching the, na- the nature channel. Sometimes we have to tell our kids to turn away. That's pretty graphic, what's, what's happening there. We want them to learn about what God's made, but that's a graphic. Where does that come from? <laughs> it doesn't come from the beauty in creation. 
In fact, it's interesting how later on some of the prophets will pick up on this, and they'll talk about the children playing with serpents. <laughs> they'll talk about the lion and the lamb eating grass together or lying down together in the field. And you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses and some other literalists will take that and say, well, that means that one day this earth's going to be remade in such a way that all these things will be perfect. That's not the idea at all. It's looking back at the way things were in creation. Before there was decay, death, and destruction, those things will come up when we get to chapter 3. We'll start seeing when all that comes about. It's disorder. That's disobedience that has brought that kind of disorder on. And then we'll see bloodshed and everything else. But in the, at the outset, everything ate only plants and fruits. When you pick a, an ear of corn, do you kill the plant? Well, corn might not be the best idea because usually we harvest the whole plant. Uh, but like a tomato or an apple. You eat the fruit, but the plant stays alive. You don't, you don't have to kill to eat fruits. And in most herbs and things, you just pluck off what you're going to eat, and the plant stays alive. But after sin, we'll see people have to kill to eat. And, and there will be, especially after Genesis chapter 9, when they, when they come off the ark and God says, you may, may now uh, kill, you drain the blood, don't eat the blood, but you may now kill, and the animals will now fear you. It also answers one of those questions that always came up about how did they keep the animals from killing each other on the ark? <laughs> they didn't. God hadn't given that, that law yet that animals could kill each other and that men could kill them. They only ate plants, so it wasn't like they had to keep a stock of animals to feed the other animals. There's a lot of things logistically that makes a lot more sense when you understand what the text says. Now, I'm not saying God couldn't have done it the other way. I'm just saying this is what God did, and the text is really clear to us. The animals ate plants, just like the people ate. And so even the food storage that they needed for the time they were going to be in the ark would have been a lot less than if they had to keep live animals to throw to the snakes or to the, uh, the lions or whatever. I was going to say giraffes, they don't eat live animals. But uh, <laughs> to throw to the lions. Uh, but uh, So it's fascinating to look at what the text really says. And, and even some of the imaginary tales that we've come up with in our heads are a little different than what the text actually says. There's a really cool, and we'll see when we get to chapter 2, it's way different than we've always believed it was. Uh, at any rate, God has given everything the green to eat, the green, the, the life. So as we eat uh, these herbs and things, life begets life, and there's this peaceful beauty that we see. And God looks at that, and he says, it is very good. It is very good. In the evening and the morning, we're the sixth day. And I'm not trying to plug vegetarianism or anything. I'm, I like meat just like anybody. Well, anybody who's not a vegetarian does. Uh, but uh, at any rate, the idea here, though, is this peace. No bloodshed, no, no death involved in the process of keeping others alive. That will certainly change once, once sin comes in. Not chapter 1. Any, any comments or questions before we finish uh, the text of chapter 1 here? Bill? I was really trying not to, but you, you were just mentioning like the, the disorder and the chaos that, you have, that we have in the world. It's interesting whenever God makes Adam and Eve, he says he blesses them, and then... He says, do these things and don't do these things. And I, yeah. I, I wonder, like whenever I read that Genesis 1, if, if whenever God is blessing them, what he's blessing them with is these commands to be fruitful and multiply and to rule and to do these things and not do those things. You yeah. look at the, the, the chaos that we have in this world or the, the, the disorder that there is in the world. A lot of it really stems from uh, us not taking advantage of the blessing that God has given us that comes through his word to obey. Amen. And we'll see that really clearly near the end of chapter 2. I mean, or halfway through chapter 2. That's God blesses them with instruction. You know, Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and truth will set you free. When I was an atheist, I was not free. <laughs> I didn't have any clue, really, where I was going, what I wanted to do. Now, when something comes up, I don't have to worry about how am I going to deal with this. The Bible already says what I need to do. All I need to do is do that. 
Some people would say, that's shackles. You're chained into doing things a certain way. No, I've been freed to know this is how to handle it. I don't have to worry about it. It's great. There's a hand over here. So one thing I've heard um, is about, well, reading this, we know that man is the first thing that God actually touched. Yeah, we'll see that really clearly in, in chapter 2. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> no, I, I, it's great. We're leading right into it. Yeah, and it's, it's like we need that touch because they say even with small children, the pituitary gland is stimulated by touch. Huh. Yeah, I, I bring out a point similar to that, but I didn't know it had to do with the pituitary. That's, that's well, pretty cool. I'm going to add some stuff to my notes now. But, yeah, we need that. They say that small children who aren't but, handled yeah, will, will end up dying. Yeah, we you, need, we need touch. physical touch. Yeah. And that's one of the things that God brings out. A great, it's an excellent point. You want to teach chapter 2? <laughs> You're right on with, with what we've got here. Um, any other comments or questions before we get into chapter 2? All right, let's get right into the text. We've still got about 25 minutes on, on this class. Um, let me just change my PowerPoint here. I forgot to do that earlier. I'm not really following the PowerPoint, but it helps me see which, which verses we're going to be reading next. Uh, verses 1 through 3. Let's read in chapter 2, 1 through 3. Who'd like to read that for us? And thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their host. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Okay, so what part of creation was done during these six days according to verse 1? What did he make on those six days? The earth and the heavens and all the hosts. The heavens and the earth, so the whole physical and, if you will, celestial universe, even the invisible things, and the host of them, the things that live and reside in heavens and earth. We're not going to get too detailed about this, but the idea here is of celestial beings and terrestrial beings. There are some that have a physical or a terrestrial body and existence, and there are others who have a, a celestial or heavenly or spiritual. Depends on what part of the Bible you're in, how you're going to define that. But it's all a non-physical existence. God made all of that during this week. Now, there are a lot of those things we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about when God made the angels, when he made Satan, <laughs> when he made any other celestial beings, when he made other things that were invisible. We don't see that because the focus of the Bible is not on those things. The focus on the Bible is on God's interaction with man and his dealings with man. So we see that very close, and we'll see that very closely in chapter 2. The other things, though, we're told in summary here were made during this week. Well, that tells us a couple of things. One, we know that Satan is a created being. He's not a physical being. He's a spiritual, if you will, a celestial, a heavenly being. It's hard for us to say that about, about Satan because we think of heaven as being something godly. It is, but heavenly really just means non-physical. Non That's the idea. So he's a heavenly being in that sense. He's a celestial or a spiritual being, which defines a little bit about the, the kind of power that he has in relation to us. He's not limited in the same way that we are by physicality, by things like time and distance, being a spiritual being, he's got more liberty to move about than we would have. We see him in Job chapter 2 and chapter 1. He's in the presence of God, for example. But he also can be on the earth and go to and fro on the earth. So spiritual beings aren't limited in the same way that we are. I don't want to get way off into details on, on that kind of a study. It's a whole other study. But the point is, God made all of that. There's nothing new under the sun, literally, after this first week of creation. And after doing that, what did God do then? Verse 2. The rest. So he ended his work of creation. He put a finish to it. Then he rested. 
And he rested how? It was very specific in verse 2 and 3, the kind of rest he did. Did he just quit doing anything? From creation. He rested from creation. Yeah, he stopped creating. And so that's the point. If he had stopped doing anything, and Jesus, in fact, brings that out later on the Sabbath. You know, my father works on the Sabbath, and I work on the Sabbath. And you're still alive, aren't you? You're still breathing. <laughs> he's upholding the existence of all things, even on the Sabbath. He's working. It's not that. It's that he rested from creation. He has now done something special on this day. He's rested on it. And then verse 3, he does two things with reference to this day. Because of this rest, because of this ending, Yes, sir. He blesses it and sanctifies it. There's that word again, separated. That's the seventh time we see it. So he's now made this day holy and he's blessed it. And what has he told the creation to do with this day? Rush. Where did he say that? Where we could sit around and worship God. But where did he say that? Did he say that here? It just says here that he did. What's that? In Hebrews, yes, later on. In fact, that's saying that even the Saturday here must not be the Sabbath because there's still another one after that. So if David had been talking about that one, he, he would have just finished there. He, but the psalm says he's longing for the real Sabbath, the real rest to come. So it's interesting. God didn't give any commands here about the Sabbath. The reason I bring this up is because Sabbatarians, especially Adventists, will say this is something God did from creation. He blessed and separated this day, and so men have to bless and separate it from creation. The first time we see the Sabbath really revealed to Israel is after the Exodus, as they're coming out and they have the manna for the first time, and God says, it's a test for you. I want to see if you'll obey me. And he says, on the Friday, you get twice as much. Any other day, don't get anything more than what I tell you, and certainly don't keep it overnight. And they already have problems with it. They don't know what the Sabbath is. Nehemiah chapter 9 says God revealed his holy Sabbaths at Horeb when they were there at Sinai. That's when we have them receiving this. And what I love is in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse uh, 12 through 15, when he is reiterating the, the Ten Commandments, he says in verse 15 specifically, you were slaves in Egypt, and God brought you out with a mighty hand, and he gave you rest. Therefore, you will keep the Sabbath. <laughs> he tells them very clearly the Sabbath was a sign from God between them and God that he was the God who could give them rest when Pharaoh had made them work and made them slaves and overdone. <laughs> so God revealed his Sabbath. Here's where we find out what he, why the Sabbath was the choice he made, but he only revealed it to Israel after the Exodus. You know when Genesis was written? After the Exodus. <laughs> now this is now they're finding out details about things that they've been hearing from Moses. And so this is when God separated the day, but he didn't say anything to men about it until he told Israel when they came out of, out of Egypt. Now it's important that we understand that. Because the first time they do it, they get it wrong because it's not something they've been doing for a while. In fact, there's a really cool detail. I'm not going to go beyond this here, but there's a really cool detail because in Exodus, when the Ten Commandments are first revealed, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It was something he had just revealed to them shortly before. He says, don't forget about this now. In Deuteronomy, when he reveals the Sabbath, he says, observe the Sabbath day. It's something they've been doing for 40 years now in the question of the manna. He says, now when you go into the land, don't forget, continue to observe as you have been all this time. It's a small nuance in the language, but it's a powerful nuance. In Exodus, uh, uh, in Exodus, first time they've heard about it, God says, now don't forget about this. Once they've been doing it for 40 years, he says, now you keep it up. <laughs> kind of cool. Anyway, I, I love language, so that that's really plays into my, uh, my study. We are looking at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, and we've seen now that God has rested on the Sabbath day. 
from verses 4 through 7, we're going to take a closer look. There's one thing that the, uh, the Spirit led the Hebrew writers to do, and I love this. You see it a lot in the, in the Psalms, especially in some of the Proverbs. There's this use of repetition. You'll see kind of a generic statement made, and then you'll see a detailed statement made right behind it that says the same thing that gives you new information. Really, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis do that. Genesis 1 is the generic creation of all things. Genesis 2 is a specific look at the creation of man and then woman uh, inside that, that sixth day of creation. So we're getting kind of a repetition uh, here in chapter 2. And so if we read 4 through 7, we'll see that chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, really begins as though it were the first verse back in chapter 1. So we'll get a kind of a parallel here, and then we'll see what he's really focusing on. So Genesis 2, verses 4 through 7, please. Where would like to take that. Yeah, you got it. I'll do it <clears throat> This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water, and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. All right, so this is the account of the heavens and the earth and the day they were created or in the time that they were created. This is really interesting. Again, we get kind of a summary statement here. This is what I'm going to tell you about. It's what he already told us about, actually. But as he begins to make man, he reminds us, what I'm telling you about as I tell you about man is the creation of the heavens and the earth. And what we're going to see as we look at man, man is uniquely situated as a creature of both heaven and earth. Every other creature is either earthly or heavenly. Angels, they're heavenly. Uh, Satan's a celestial being. Man is both physical and heavenly, both earthly and celestial. Man is the, the perfect marriage, if you will, of heaven and earth. It's beautiful when we begin to see that. So that's the, the genealogy of the heavens and the earth would be incomplete without the one who's, made, who's brought them both together in man. And that's why it was necessary later on for a man to come, for God to come in the form of man to bring heaven and earth together again in himself. He restored all things, as Colossians says. It's really cool when you start looking at, at how these work together. Yeah, it's one of those light bulb moments, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's fun. I, I love these texts because they're so rich, and we have glossed over them in our childhood story reading of these texts. When we go back and look at it, it's like, wow, I've never seen that. So God is bringing together heavens and earth in man. But before we get there, as we did in, in chapter 1, there were some problems, some, some situations that needed to be taken care of. And so we see one of those here in this parallel uh, construction. In verse 5, there's no plants in the fields and the herbs haven't grown yet. I think it's a terrible translation. The idea here is that the plants aren't producing as they should. They're there. We saw them already. They already sprung up in chapter 1. But the plants are here, but they're not producing as they should yet. Why? There's two reasons why. There's been no rain yet. That's, that's on God. <laughs> and there's no man to cultivate it yet. That's on God, but it's really on man. So we're looking for God and man to work together for the things on the earth to do what they should. It's amazing to me when you look at the whole idea of the gospel. <laughs> Couldn't God just have put it in men's heart, what he wanted them to do? People say that, you know, it was on my heart. The Holy Spirit touched my heart. That's not really how the gospel works, I guess. Uh, he could have sent an angel down, and he did sometimes to guide people, but God didn't really force people to accept the gospel. How do people get the gospel? They need men to take it to them. <laughs> Every time. 
in all of God's creation, we'll see he's got Moses going to call his people. God could have called his people out of, out of Egypt. He's using man in his work. What a blessing that we are a part of the work that God wants to do. And he allows us to be a part of that. And he, in fact, encourages us to be a part of that and equips us to be a part of that. Here, he wants the man to till the earth, to, to work the earth, so that the plants can grow like they're supposed to. He'll, do the, he'll provide the water. He'll provide the, the plants themselves. But man will work it. And it'll all come out, and man will then be ruling over this, this earth that God has made. It's beautiful to see how God wants us to be involved in the work that he's doing. So God hasn't made it rain yet, and he hasn't created man. Verse 6, though, God takes care of the issue of rain without it raining. Remember, he's got this reservoir of water for something else he's got planned later. <laughs> That's going to happen back when the flood, or later when the flood comes. So without making it rain, God makes a mist come up from the ground. That takes care of what the plants need for their water. It's this thick dew. It's amazing that, uh, and I'll try to bring these points out as I, as I get to them, some in Genesis here. A lot of these images that we'll find sprinkled all through the Bible have their origins in Genesis. There is a thick dew uh, in certain parts of Mount Hermon and other places in Israel that are a reminder of the blessing of the Garden of Eden. This dew that comes up and waters the ground is a part in Israel that's always green, except in the winter months. It's, it's just that even when there's a drought, there's part of Israel that always had green plants because of this thick dew that come up on the mountainside. It's kind of a reflection back to this. There are many of them we'll see in these first four chapters, and I'll try to bring them out as I said, and there's more on the, uh, on the PowerPoints that are just reflections all through the Bible, and some that are really, really cool. At any rate, God has made the water first. Now he's going to make the man. He's going to put the man in to do the work, but the account of how he makes the man is really incredible and really touching. We had seen that he called everything else into existence. Let there be and then when he talked about man, he had this conversation with, with Jesus, let us make. But those are still pretty generic terms. When we get to verse 7, there's a very specific verb that's used. What did God do to make the man? Formed. 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 And this is what, what Aretha was really getting to. We get this picture of God forming man out of what? What did he make him out of? The clay or the ground or the dust really is the word that's used here. He's picked up this base element. You know, dust is something we don't really like it in our homes. My son's allergic to it. My wife's always sweeping it out. We don't want dust around. That's what we're made out of. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. God picks up this most base thing, and it's like he picks it up in his hand and he models it. We get that image so much in the, in the prophets. You know, we're the, the clay maker, we're the, we're the model that he's made with his clay. I can't think in English how you say that. So, uh, but he's modeled us after this clay. And so God has picked up and formed man, and he's made him exactly intricately the way he wants him to be. It's a very intimate process, and it should be. We should think of it that way. But then sometimes we may get the idea, as we look at this, that he's, he's got man the way he wants him, and he sets him up, and he goes, to give him the breath of life. But that's not the image that we see here. What did he do to give man the breath of life? He breathed into his nostrils. How are you going to do that if you go, don't you have to pick him up and go? That's the image that the Jews have of how they're formed. That's the image we should have. God has picked us up in the, in the palm of his hand and brought us to his face and breathed on us. The Lord shined his face upon you. And can you see that as he's looking intimately at each one of us and breathing the breath of life in? That changes who we think we are if that's how we're made. It would be the same way today. <clears throat> Excuse me. If a person to bring a person to life, you blow into the right the resuscitation. You know, it's, there's an intimate contact that's necessary, and this is the picture that God says, "Here's how I made you." 
this is not just, I kind of made this world and just randomly threw you guys into it, kind of this uh, evolution, evolutionary creationism or whatever, just got, kind of got the ball rolling. God is intimately involved with us and wants to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting the impression that there's this lifeless form. He puts it together. And then he, he it's not just the breath. There's more than the breath. Yes, there's a result of this breath that comes from God. Yes. So there's a, there's a physical element, this dust. There's this heavenly element that comes from the breath of God. And what's the end result then? You were just pointing to that in verse 7. I'm a living being. Living being. And this is the word soul really here. This is what separates man from the animals. There is something more. This is the something more that God wants a relationship with. Ecclesiastes, the body's going to go back to the earth. The breath itself is going to go back to God who sent it. But there's this thing, this living soul, this immortal part of us that will continue on. That's the part that in Genesis 4, God says, I hear the blood of your brother Abel calling from the ground. He's had a relationship with Abel even after death. How is that possible? There's something more that came on with man. Yes, David. It was what you said there about intimate contact. I think it's good for us to remember, too, it wasn't just Adam yeah. that he intimately did this. It was all of us, you know, and that's good for us to remember that God didn't just, as some say, wind up a clock and let it go, yeah. that he's still intimately involved with his creation. So, you know, that's, that's a comforting thought, I guess. Amen. For all we should understand how intimately involved God is with us and how much he wants us to be with him. You, you think about the intimacy that God wants to have with us. So you, you, I think sometimes we think just like breath, like that's my uh -huh. breath. But I mean, like, what, what, like in a, I'm sure the Portuguese does this too, but in Spanish, you can get another word for breath is spirit. Uh -huh. and so, exactly. And so the idea of God putting his breath in us is, is God putting his spirit. You think we were made in God's image. Yep. God putting his spirit. Now, that's the eternal aspects and all the eternal qualities of God that, that we're like him in that aspect. But I just think about whenever Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection. He's like, Jesus being the life-giving spirit. Right. You know, it's just how, how Jesus is the last Adam. And, and, but again, like that's, that's just what God has always done. That's the intimacy. It's not just he's blowing some breath in us and now we have life. We have his spirit. It's, it's, a, it's a, as intimate as it can be. Absolutely. He's not just blowing up some balloons made out of clay or whatever. He's really forming us and making us into something that can be in some way a reflection of him. And he wants to train us how to really be like him. That's what he does in Christ. He's got a culture than, than Aretha. Um, while we're on all these different words, do you know if there's a connection between the forming of man and the formlessness of the back in what was the verse? There's certainly God creating order here, even in the in the case of man. I don't, I haven't looked at the, those words if they're the same. That's a that's a cool etymology study for later, though. When you when you figure that out, send me an email. I'd like no. to hear about that. Aretha, you had a comment. Uh, it's like he made man body, soul, and spirit, and we know the spirit would be the greater of the three. Because yeah, it depends on how you use that. We get there's the language is kind of confusing, even from the old to the new testament, because the word spirit can be breath, it can be wind, it can be spirit. Sometimes used for the soul. We really we should think more of soul growth instead of spiritual growth. The spirit really is just the breath that's going to go back to God. But in the new testament, it's used accommodatively. I'm looking at it in the terms that God said those who worship him must yes. do so in spirit. And that's where he's talking about really the attachment to our soul. Yeah. I would use that I, word. The I, Bible I, uses spirit, so I'll use spirit. Yeah. But we need to really understand what we're talking about is really more the soul than yeah. the breath. What's talking about in Ecclesiastes is the breath that goes back to God. Mm -hmm. The spirit that goes back to and God. And each dimension of that, like the, the body is where we get the world consciousness mm -hmm. and the mental part of us. 
you know, that's why, that's our self-consciousness and the spirit, that's how we commune with God, I believe. Yeah, the spirit and the self-consciousness, I would consider to be the same. I think that those those are, are tied together. Uh, it's soul, soul, body, soul is in my spirit. Yeah, but I believe that the idea of the spirit in that case is just the breath. It's, okay. the, it's a life force. That we've got the soul, which is the, the lingering part, the part that goes on after death, and the body is what's completely done away with. Ecclesiastes really helps us with that. The okay. body goes back to the earth. The spirit, the breath, goes back to God who gave it. But see, people read that wrong, and they think that means that the soul is going right up to God. That's not the idea. He's only looking at things that are physical, things that are under the sun in that context. So the body goes here, the breath goes back. He doesn't even really talk about the soul in that context. We learn about that from other texts. But yeah, the soul is the part we really want to want to work yeah, on. That's, that's what we want to. That's where we get all our mental. Our yeah, that's who we are. Really, the soul is who we are. Everything stored there. Yes. Culture that I'm just asking about the passages in Ecclesiastes. I was thinking of the one where Paul mentions in Thessalonians, but I don't know if you want to go down that. Which one are you talking about in Thessalonians? At the end of Thessalonians is where he makes the three-part division she mentioned about yeah. <laughs> preserve you in your soul, body, and spirit complete. That's I, I, that's what I thought she was yeah. referencing. And, and what I'm saying is that the language sometimes in the New Testament is used accommodatively, yeah. and we, we're talking about spirit, but we really mean soul. And I say, you know, I'll use spirit because the New Testament does, but I understand when I'm saying that, that I'm really talking about the growth of my soul, not the growth of my breath that goes back to God. We just, I just want to make sure we understand we're talking about spirit. We're talking about the things that pertain to our soul and not to our breath, our life force. What um, passage was that in Ecclesiastes? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask. I didn't write it down. Um, I think it's Ecclesiastes 12, but let me, let me verify. Does anybody have that off the top of their head? Uh, Uh, it's not clear. Well, y'all look for that. This, the passage, is it Aretha? Yes. Aretha's thinking of 2 Thessalonians. I'm Thank sorry, 1 Thessalonians. 12 7. Uh, is it 12 7? Well, the Spirit will turn to God who gave it. Yes. But I, I think yeah. personally, he does talk about an eternal nature there because he does talk at the very end of that book about how well, if this is man's all, God will bring every work into judgment when there is secret thing, whether good or evil. So. Yes, yeah, certainly in the end, that's what he's yeah. talking about. But I believe when he's talking about just the physical part, our body dies, our breath goes back to God. Our soul is what's going to be judged. There's a part that remains. So, go ahead. She was thinking of 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Yes. Yeah, I understand that. I'm just saying we need to make sure that, that we, we make the distinction, though, in the New Testament. When we talk about spiritual growth, we're not thinking about making our life force better. We're talking about making our souls uh, more tied to what God wants. There's, there's, a, there's an issue there, that language issue there. Uh, at any rate... What we're seeing here is that this spirit part of man, this soul part of man, is the end result of God's forming him from the earth and then breathing his life breath into him. That's something that comes from God. So you've got this marriage of the physical and the celestial in man that then results in something that from that point forward is immortal. And that's the part that God wants to have a relationship with. So that's what makes man different from the animals. And we understand, even atheists understand, that man is different from animals. Monica? Well, in Psalm 139, verse 13, you knew my innermost soul, my innermost being. You knitted me in my mother's womb. I mean, he knows everything. Yes. And it was, I mean, I read that, and I, all day long I could nothing but talk about that. Amen. I mean, people thought I was crazy, but it was like, <laughs> he knitted me in my mother's womb. 
Yeah. God has made us from, from before we could even consider we were being made. And that, I mean, that's an argument uh, that the, the anti-abortionists will use, certainly, that God has, this life has been since the moment of conception. This is not something that when you start being able to see that it's life, even God has made it before then. I would agree with that argument. Uh, but at any rate, what we're looking at is this, uh, this dual nature. And I think we need to think about that. We are made of the dust of the earth. So when we begin to think that we're more important than we really are, we need to remember we're dust of the earth. That's the best we are in terms physical. Uh, you know, the, the kings that were brought low and the ones that Hades were receiving and saying, even you, you who tormented the nations, here you are, brought low with the rest of us. You're just dust of the earth. But on the day we think we're not worth anything, we need to remember that God has given us of his spirit and he has made us something that is worth something. So we've got this dual nature we've got to, got to wrestle with. <laughs> Paul himself, you know, what wretched man that I am. You know, I, I want to do what's right. I, I know I want to do what's right, but then I find myself doing what's wrong. <laughs> you know, who's going to save me from this body of sin and death? The Lord is. He's going to set us aright. He's going to ordain us. He's going to put us back in order like we were meant to be. And he'll bring us back to reflect that image that we lost in sin. That's exactly what Christ has come to do. Come to restore us to the image and likeness of God. We'll be transformed in that. Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 8, we'll be transformed to glory as his glory is. Then we'll gain back the image that we lost. We are at a, another stopping point. I know it's gone really quickly. We haven't even got hardly any chap into chapter 2. Tomorrow morning I'll be working on whatever we leave off from here and then at 3 in the afternoon if we still have time and, and there's enough people interested, we'll continue doing the, uh, the rest. We may not get through all, all of chapter 4, but I'll be glad to send you the PowerPoints, and if you want to do an email study with me, this stuff is fun to talk about. I can go hours and hours on it, uh, but I wouldn't torture you with making you sit here through that. But uh, any comments or questions up through verse four, of, uh, verse 7 of chapter 2 before we take another 10-minute break? All right, feel free to have uh, about 10 minutes to mingle, and we'll be right back.